Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. Kev, at the end of the week, the weekend's upon us. What's going on, my guy? Nothing, man. I am taking advantage of knock on wood. My allergy is not killing me. And from what I can see, my partner's also in the same boat. So we're going to, we exactly, we are going to enjoy this victory while we can get it. But while at the same time, we got a packed agenda for you guys today. Super excited. Oh, yeah. We got some, some NFL free agency news. Obviously, the new NFL season has started as far as the league year is concerned. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the World Baseball Classic. That's ongoing right now. We'll talk a little NBA news, and we'll wrap it up with the UFC. So, by Kev, I'll kick you the uh, the topics at hand. Take it from here, brother. All right. So, like Kyle said, we're going to do a little bit of everything. First on the agenda, we are going to talk about the World Baseball Classic and the unfortunate injury that happened to Edwin Diaz the other night. Puerto Rico, thankfully, beats Dominican Republic for the first time in... I don't even know how long, and it just it feels good to know that that happened for you know my ethnicity, my people. So that was just for full transparency, you guys. Kev is a little bit biased towards Puerto Rico. It's just the little rivalry that exists between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. It is real, and uh, just to give you guys a little heads up on like what happened leading up to that game the other day, man, Kev was going nuts. Uh, on the lead up to that game between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, basically saying, bro, it's on with the Dominicans. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was literally screaming at the gym while watching it on my phone. Like, you can ask Isabel and my boy AJ, like, legit mid-set, I'd have it in my ear, and then in between sets, I'd have it, like, posted up on, like, a machine I was working out with, and I was just like, yeah. Bro, I'm surprised you you weren't repping a Puerto Rican flag today. Throw, Listen, throw a little Listen. bit of pride in uh, Puerto Rico. Every time I tell Isabel I'm going to hang it up in our future house, she's like, don't be that cornball. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to do what I got to do, okay? Do, 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 you remember, um, do you remember the scene in the Benchwarmers when that guy said, I'm 12 plays? Yes, absolutely. I, I know that he represented, I think it was DR in that movie. Bro, if... It was DR if, or Mexico, one of those two. I think I it was DR. Freaking cranked a home run and then ran around the bases with the with the DR flag it was one of the most hysterical parts of the movie. I, I'll just say this: if Puerto Rico wins the World Baseball Classic, bro, you got to rep it. You got to rep. Oh, one hundred percent. It's coming out. It's not going to be a problem. It's not going to be an issue. But like I said, unfortunately, the the negative to the game is we lost Edwin Diaz as well as the Mets lost their All Star closer 
for the year after just getting a massive payday. So there are some negative connotations that have been transpiring behind the World Baseball Classic and whether or not it should be played and whether or not all-stars and you know premier players should be a part of it and yada, yada, yada. So Kyle and I will kind of dive into that and what our thoughts are there. Then as we talked about, NFL free agency has begun as of March 15th. The official league year has begun and names are flying. Checks are being signed. Paydays are being sent out. It is absolutely just... It's a fire sale right now, and we love this time of year because you get to see some of the best players in the league that hit free agency, where they end up going, if they end up staying, who gets traded. It is so much fun, and it is far from over because this is going to continue to go on probably a lot slower than what we're, we've been at the last couple of days, but all the way up into the draft because players have been traded on draft night for capital, for draft picks, for other players, so the league year has officially begun. It's so much fun. We can't wait to talk about it. We got three players in mind that we think that are going to make significant impacts on their future teams, or should I say on their new teams, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth. And then to move on into the NBA, Steph Curry goes for 50. The, the, Steph, at the age of 34, 35, it just continues to show that he is one of the best players in the league, and he's not going to stop. But unfortunately, despite scoring 50, the Warriors end up falling to the Clippers. Which adds on to the topic, the Warriors are historically one of the worst teams in NBA history on the road. They are 7-27, 7-29 this season. Absolutely atrocious. They're making a playoff push. People are saying it makes no difference whether or not Golden State even makes a top four seed, a top eight seed. You got to play two games away. <laughs> and the odds of them winning statistically are not in their favor. So we'll talk a little bit about how Golden State just cannot seem to get a win when they're not at the Chase Center. And then to close it out, UFC's this weekend. How's the expertise? We're going to dive into that, and we're going to talk a little bit about what is on the slate for that Saturday evening. But Kyle, like I said, man, slam-packed agenda today. Can't wait to get started. So let's go, and let's start about the WBC. Yeah, and you know when it comes to the World Baseball Classic, this is really cool from my perspective, because this is almost kind of akin to the Olympics. You see individual company, uh, countries competing to win the World Baseball Classic. And, you know, you could pretty much look at any sort of walk of life across the world, whether it's Japan, whether it's Israel, whether it's Colombia, Puerto Rico, the United States. I mean, there's a boatload of countries that are competing against one another. And I think it's actually kind of interesting because I think a lot of these players that are either playing in the MLB or playing in respective leagues across the world. This is essentially tune-ups for spring training. If you're looking at it from the MLB perspective, this is essentially kind of a tune-up for spring training to lead into the regular season. But it's been very competitive. It's been very compelling to watch. I believe we're in the quarterfinal stage right now. Yep. I think a lot of the, the group stage play has already been completed. Uh, the United States advanced. Barely. I think they barely beat Colombia the other day to advance uh, to the quarterfinals, just from the United, Sp United States perspective. But uh, this will be going on for the next couple days. I'm not 100% sure when it's supposed to wrap up, maybe a week or two from now. But either way, it's been very exciting to watch. But like Kev said in the lead-up, one of the biggest storylines that we've seen from the WBC so far this year was Edwin Diaz shredding his knee in a celebration after Puerto Rico defeated the Dominican Republic by the score of 5-2. to two. And obviously, when it comes to Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, there's always been a rivalry between those two countries, especially in baseball, because both teams competitively 
are really solid at baseball. Some of the best players in the MLB currently reside in both the DR and Puerto Rico. And when it comes to Edwin Diaz, I mean, if you guys don't know who he is, I imagine if you just go on Twitter, if you look on social media, it is the closer from the Mets whose walkout song is Trumpets. And essentially, it was this major viral sensation that took place last year, especially amongst not only Mets fans, but really the MLB was kind of one of the more exciting features of the MLB season uh, this past year. But unfortunately for Puerto Rico in the WBC and the Mets, uh, they will not have Edwin Diaz in the fold for the foreseeable future. I believe he tore his patella tendon when he was celebrating with Puerto Rico after defeating DR. So Kev, my question to you, this is more generally about the WBC and how fans look at it from a certain perspective. Do you think that players should pay more attention on the WBC or should they focus more time on prepping for spring training in the MLB and then the subsequent MLB season when it starts in late March, early April? I think it's a player-by-player basis. I mean, listen, like Kyle just stated, a lot of players are international-based from not only Spanish countries. We have Japan. We have across the pond in UK. It doesn't make a difference. People from all over the globe are trying to play professional baseball. But then when the World Baseball Classic was implemented and created, all of these people now had an additional purpose outside of making to the prof- outside of making it to a professional league. Obviously, the MLB is always the goal, but. You now get to represent your country. You get to represent your people. You get to fight and play against the best talent in the entire world. Yes, the MLB has the best talent, just like the NBA has the best talent, and the NFL has the best talent, but not everybody is American-based. So when you get a tournament like this where you get to represent where you were born, where you have descent, ethnicity from that you claim that you want to be a part of, I believe that that's beautiful. And I think that there should be a conversation about whether or not players should decide on whether or not they want to play in it due to the fact of like Edwin Diaz, you get injured. But it doesn't really make a difference whether or not you get injured at the World Baseball Classic or spring training. We've seen people get injured all the time at spring training. Elbow injuries, Tommy John surgeries. We've seen people get hurt in the MLB season celebrating while running, rounding the bases going uh, home. I think the first one that pops up is Kendrick Morales 10, 10 12 years ago. Um, hits a walk-off home run, jumps on home plate. I think he shatters his kneecap right there. So things like this happen all the time. It's a matter of situational awareness. Do you want to be a part of this and take a gamble and not being able to play for the team that you are a part of in the MLB? Sure, but you have to be able to be held accountable for that action. Okay, you decided to play in the WBC. If you get hurt, an MLB team should be allowed to say, we're not liable to pay your salary this year, or we're not liable to pay you your full salary this year. I don't know the stipulations contractually. I don't know how that goes. I don't know if things are worked into that because the WBC is every four years like the Olympics. So this is something that needs to be ironed out per player, per situation. But for people to be saying that the World Baseball Classic means nothing, for them to be saying this is a pointless tournament, nobody cares about it, nobody watches it, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't care. Maybe America doesn't care. But Puerto Rico, DR, Venezuela, all these other countries are glued to the TV because they have something to watch. I'm not even trying to be disrespectful. If the United States decided to decline this invitation every year and just say, you know what, we are better than this. We don't need to be a part of this petty tournament. That is probably the most arrogant American thing people would be able to do. There are people that have pride 
to represent their country on their chest. There are people that have pride and joy to represent where they're from. And for people to dismantle that, discredit that, and denounce that is just so disrespectful. Again, Edwin Diaz could have gotten hurt doing anything. He could have got hurt on vacation. He could have got hurt warming up in his garage. Whatever it is that people do in their free time, injuries happen all the time. But for you to go and discredit an incredible tournament that pans, pans, that fans are so passionate about, that players get so into it, get so involved. People have made comparisons. The atmosphere at the WBC is close to it, like almost like a World Series game because these games are so important for these people. It's all that matters to them. And there was an interview that had gone around, whether that was yesterday, the day before, where I forget somebody had asked the Dominican baseball team, uh, what would you value more? A championship with the, from the WBC or a World Series trophy? Every single one of them chose the WBC. Call it what you want. That goes to show all of the players that were asked are in the MLB. <laughs> Nelson Cruz, Manny Machado, and a list of other people. We all know Dominican Republic has plenty of not only good players, but premier players that play in the MLB. And for them to say they'd rather represent their country, that goes to show how important it is to them. That goes to show how much weight wearing Dominican Republic on their chest means to them. So before you go and criticize because of your opinion, let's go into consideration and think maybe this is more important to the players than your entertainment. Kev, I agree 100%. When I look at the World Baseball Classic, it's very different than what you get with a typical MLB season because it doesn't happen every year. And I think the one thing that the WBC stokes is that national sense of pride that is very akin to the Olympics. And when the country is able to rally around something, it could be anything. It could be sports. It could be something political, whatever the case may be. This one just happens to be sports in specifically baseball. I think it's great. And when you actually look at the viewership, I think there are more people tuning in from countries around the world when it comes to the respective countries in the WBC than what you would see in typically a World Series game. And the World Series is, I mean, that's the ultimate stage in the MLB. But when it comes to the World Baseball Classic, not every nation is really tuned in to watch the World Series, but they may be tuned in to watch the World Baseball Classic because their respective country is competing in it. No matter if they win or lose, they're focusing on that team from where they reside. I think it's a great thing. And when it comes to Edwin Diaz, for example, and him unfortunately shredding his knee when Puerto Rico was celebrating when they defeated the Dominican Republic the other day, it was a freak injury. And guess what? Injuries like that are not uncommon. They do happen. It's just, unfortunately, in his case, it happened to be a significant injury where he's going to miss essentially the entire season. Now, I understand and I can sympathize with Mets fans feeling some type of way about he was playing in the World Baseball Classic and now he's going to miss the entire regular season for the Mets and it's going to have a big impact on them. And I don't want to miss that point entirely because it does get a, it's going to have some carryover effect when it comes to the Mets this season. But I think when it comes to the idea of whether or not these players should play in the WBC or not, I'm with Kev. I think this is an individual choice 
a perspective as far as I see it. And when it comes to playing for the country that you're representing, I think that is a laudable thing to do because like I said, the world baseball classic doesn't happen very often. And when you're presented an opportunity to represent your country of where you reside from, I think you take the the personal responsibility of carrying essentially the weight of the country on your shoulders and being able to represent the best values of your country, not only to the people that you're essentially playing for, but you're essentially showcasing those values across a worldwide audience so that everybody can see it. And I think when it comes to a lot of these guys and deciding whether or not to play for the World Baseball Classic, you have to be at a certain level to be able to participate in it. And usually it's the best of the best players in each country. And they're taking full advantage of it. And if they want to compete for a World Baseball Classic championship, I all power to them. It's just there's unfortunately a downside if these players end up getting hurt in the World Baseball Classic when this tournament only lasts a couple of weeks. And then you look at what they have to focus on for most of their professional career, which resides in the MLB. And if they get hurt, you know, that's going to have a big impact for the MLB side of things. But I think for me, the way that I see it, I love when the World Baseball Classic comes on. It's very entertaining to watch. I think it's just great to watch these international teams be able to compete against one another because we don't typically see it all the time. You know, we watch the Yankees and the Red Sox play each other every single year, and everybody loves the rivalry that exists between them. But, you know, Kev's Puerto Rican. And for me to be able to see him kind of go back and forth with people that he's been friends with his entire life who are of Dominican descent, and obviously it be in a, in a friendly banter, in a friendly way. I think that's just interesting to see just because, you know, there's a little bit of national pride that goes along with that. And as long as it's done in a, a competitive manner and it's friendly in nature, I'm all for it. And I think it should be, I think it should be talked about in more of a positive light than some people that look at it differently. Especially, you know, when it comes to people that are more focused on the MLB side of things. But for me, I, I think this is a, it's a great tournament. You know, hopefully we'll get to see these teams of all these different countries try to compete for the, the top spots, be able to, to win the championship. Obviously, I'm from the United States and this is where I reside. This is just where my heritage is. You know, I'm probably going to lean a bit more heavily to the United States. But, you know, as long as the competition is good, as long as these guys are competing at a high level, the end of the day as long as good baseball is being played i'll take that any day and i'll just leave it at that i just i'll never comprehend how people can bash something that they don't like and then when it comes to a global standpoint like this continue to just bash it with 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 lack of knowledge oh edwin diaz got hurt this is exactly why tournaments like this shouldn't exist i don't hear anybody saying that when the olympics are around it's hysterical because again that's something that people get behind, but because you don't like baseball or because this is more focalized in maybe ethnic countries that are more specialized in a sport that maybe the United States isn't particularly focused on. Not to say that the USA isn't good, not to say that they haven't won a World Baseball Classic before or anything like that, but because you don't like it, you got to bash it. I'm talking about a specific reporter in general 
who will not be named, somebody that used to work for Barstool Sports or still works for them or whatever, and he's just in the comments consistently bashing people. And it looked to be he was wishing injury upon people that chose to play regardless. And when you get to a point like that, you start to become an asshole. And you are talking about the mass population of the planet. This isn't just America anymore. You have Great Britain, you have Japan, you have the United States, and all these other Spanish countries all around the globe. But because you don't like it, it's deemed stupid. It's something that's unnecessary. It's something that disrupts the the flow of baseball season because it's right before the season started. Seems like you got a personal vendetta against the WBC, and your opinion is truthfully irrelevant because it's not going to change. Countries all around the world watch this. They're glued to it. They're enjoying it. And especially if their countries are winning... No one's going to give a shit if you have some negative opinion. I'm just saying. I had to get that out. I can understand if Mets fans are feeling a little salty. Agreed. I can understand. Listen, you know, if I'm a Mets fan, which I'm not, I would feel a little bit salty about the fact that Edwin Diaz unfortunately got hurt right. in the World Baseball Classic. And that's going to have a cascading effect on the Mets this year. But... Kev, injuries happen all the time. Everywhere, bro. It, I, Edwin Diaz could have, you know, God forbid, torn his rotator cuff or torn his UCL in his elbow and get Tommy John surgery, would miss the entire season. He could have hurt that in spring training. He could have shredded his knee in the first or second week of the regular season in the MLB. Injuries are a part of the game. They happen. It's an unfortunate side of sports, but... He, unfortunately for him, it just happened at the World Baseball Classic. And unfortunately, it happened to be a significant one. I I think he was actually uh, carted off the field in a wheelchair. I think initially they tried to carry him off the field, and then I think they I think they ended up putting him on a wheelchair. And then they, uh, I think he wheeled himself out of the, the stadium after the game. But, guys, injuries happen. It's a part of the game, no matter what game is being played. And like Kev said... You know, when it comes to some of these countries in particular, the United States is different. The United States is specialized in a lot of sports outside of baseball. And honestly, depending on how people look at it, baseball is like third or fourth on the totem pole at this point in as far as professional sports are being concerned. But when it comes to South American teams or Japan, or you could look at a lot of these Caribbean countries, baseball is the ultimate. Colombia is a little bit different. Colombia, I think, is more focused on soccer. You could probably say that about you know Brazil and some of those South American countries, but I'm not going to disregard the fact that baseball is significant for some of those South American countries too. But I know for the Caribbean countries, especially like Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, it's heavily baseball. That is the premier sport in those respective countries. And... Like Kev said, you know, the World Baseball Classic does not happen every single year. And when you're given an opportunity to represent your native country, to be able to compete on a worldwide stage and compete at the highest level against you know, you know, players that you play in the MLB but on respective countries, I think that that's a good opportunity. I think it's a a good way of being able to show some national pride and I think Kev I I think in the United States, I don't think we take it as serious as far as that national pride element compared to right. some other countries. 
because when you look at some of these countries across the world, when it comes to the like the World Baseball Classic or the World Cup, kept these guys across the world, these fans are damn near rabid. I they get hyped around and they rally around the members of their respective team that comes from their country of origin. And I think in the United States, I think there's a segment of the population within the United States that is still going to be rabid for the home team for the United States. But I think the energy is not the same. And I don't know what it is. I, I think it's maybe because we may think that we're better than that. Maybe we're too good to show off our emotions that vividly, but or we I think lo- we're better than what we are, like very, like, like way it, too it, arrogant. It, it, I was going to say that, you know, the arrogance factor is another thing. But I'm just talking about the pure emotion that yeah. you see from the fans. You, you know, when it comes to some of these smaller countries and you compare it to the United States, it's just the energy is not the same. These fans it's in some of these countries, they just go nuts. But you got to really- remember, though, you, you, like, is Dominican soccer on television at any point in America that people care about? No. Is, is Venezuelan badminton on television? I'm just saying, like, sports in general, like, no. But they're on television right now. They're competing against the, the best players in the, again, the globe. And people fail to realize um, the sport that we love, the sport that we play, some of the best players in the world aren't from America. Joey Otani that everybody's infatuated with, Japanese. He plays. Oh, he plays for Japan. Oh, that's right. Edwin Diaz, all-star closer, plays for them. Oh, he's Puerto Rican, and so on and so on. All these players that you love are from different places. So if they choose to represent the places that they're from, you're upset. But you want them to play for America for you, and then when they get hurt, it's like. Well, it's a part of the game. It's a little double standard for me. It's a little funny. There are people that I've seen on Twitter that were actually complaining about there should be more prominent U.S. players playing in the WBC, especially on the pitcher side. I saw that just a couple of days ago before Edwin Diaz went down with his knee injury. That's funny. And, and it was people essentially talking about you look at Otani and he's playing for Japan. And Otani is one of the most dynamic players that we've seen in the MLB in quite some time. And he's playing in it. And then there are some guys within the United States who didn't opt in to play in the WBC when they actually had an opportunity to play for it. And I think for me, it just kind of goes back to this national pride thing. And I'm glad that some of these guys are stepping up to the plate, no pun intended, to be able to represent their home countries and play with a little sense of pride for their country. I think that's a great thing, and especially in, in in some of these, in some of these either smaller countries or you could say countries that economically aren't as stable compared to the United States. You know, you know, Kevin and I we live pretty fairly comfortable lives, and you look at some other people that that live in some of these, they live in disadvantaged situations. Sometimes, you know, when you when you represent a team or you represent a nation and you're able to enjoy something where there are players of your country that represent 
your country as a whole, and they succeed at the highest level possible, you know, you have that moment where you can kind of like put all the troubles of the real world to the side for a little bit to enjoy that one moment of that national pride that brings everybody together, that unites everybody. I mean, that's a powerful thing. When everybody's able to essentially put all the bullshit aside from the real world for a little bit and just rally around one another and, and unite you know, behind a country that is representing a team in the World Baseball Classic. I think that's a fantastic thing. And I do, I just wish more people in the United States would show just a little bit more energy or, or a little bit more emotion because sometimes little things like this, it, people could look at it as like, oh, this is just a baseball tournament. Like, like who gives a shit? But sometimes it's just, it's just things like this that, that can bring people together, that can rally around one another. And, you know, it, it, it can bring people in united fashion. And I think that that's a wonderful thing, especially when uh, a respective country succeeds at the highest level possible. And then you have citizens of that country that could be able to revel and enjoy the moment with their fellow citizens. And just live for the moment if their team of their respective country plays at the highest level possible and achieves the ultimate goal and end up winning the World Baseball Classic Championship. But, you know, I, you know, personally, I just wish the United States fans would show a little bit more energy and emotion. But I'll just kind of leave it at that. Kev, I know we kind of went on with this a lot longer than I think we both anticipated. Hey, but, um, I don't mind. It happens. We got plenty of stuff to talk about. So, guys, we're going to move into NFL free agency. Um, we got three players in our personal opinion that we believe are going to have the most impact as of right now because, again, people are still signing, people are still restructuring contracts. So as of right this moment, the three players we're going to discuss today are going to be Jimmy Garoppolo signing with the Vegas Raiders, Darren Waller getting traded to the New York Giants, and Orlando Brown, instead of re-signing with the Kansas City Chiefs, he decides to go and sign for the, what I would consider, rival at this point, Cincinnati Bengals. Now, I, I messed up the order. We're actually going to do Jimmy, then Orlando, then we're going to do Darren Waller. But I just I got excited for Darren Waller because I got a lot of Giant fan friends, and I know that they're super, super pumped. So shout out to Santino and uh, and Kev. But Kyle, what do we got first? What are we talking about? Well, first, like you said, we got to talk about Jimmy G. Uh, Jimmy G is heading to Vegas. Uh, he's moving on from his San Francisco tenure with the 49ers. And Jimmy G is going to be the starting quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders for the foreseeable future. Uh, when you look at the current core of players that they have at their disposal, uh, they were able to bring back Josh Jacobs into the fold. Obviously, you got Devontae Adams. And when you look at Jimmy G's success throughout his NFL career, granted, it hasn't led to a Super Bowl championship. But wherever he's been in his respective career, success has followed. And most recently, um, you can look at his 49ers tenure he was able to lead the 49ers to an NFC Championship game, not this past season, but the season prior. And then the season before that, I believe they went to the Super Bowl where they ended up losing to the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 54. I think it was two years before that. Two years. Two years. I, I think I'm confusing it with the year that the Bucs won. So I yeah, think it was yeah. That, it, was the, uh, it was before COVID. It was, that's the year I'm thinking of. 2019 of of or something like that. Yeah. I think that Super Bowl actually happened in 2020 in February. 2020 because it landed in the fiscal year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was literally, I think, about a month before the world went to hell in a handbasket with COVID. So, it, guys, like that point in time was like a black hole for everybody because everything went to Facts. shit real quick when COVID hit. 
But nonetheless, Jimmy G is off to Vegas, and Kevin, he's going to the AFC West, one of the most competitive divisions in the a- not only in the AFC, but in the NFL to a larger extent. So things are going to get very interesting in this AFC West this upcoming season. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, with Jimmy G going to the Raiders, what sort of impact do you think he's going to bring to Vegas this upcoming year and then subsequently years following after that? So everybody knows, and if you don't already know, I'm a big Jimmy Garoppolo fan. I think Jimmy G is one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. I'm not saying top 10. I'm not saying the best. I'm not saying anything of that nature. I think he is a well above average quarterback. I think he's a proven winner, and I think he gets it done. He's not flashy for 450 yards like a Patrick Mahomes. He's not someone that's going to go and dice up a defense accurately like a like a Matt Ryan back in Atlanta in terms of completion percentage. He's not someone that's mobile like a Lamar Jackson or a Justin Fields, but he is just a guy that finds a way to get it done, whether that's 125 yards and three touchdowns, whether that's 250 yards and one touchdown. It doesn't make a difference. He is the embodiment of what a franchise needs in order to freaking win, and that is what the Raiders need to do. The Raiders offensively have never been an issue. They struggled last year. Derek Carr got benched. They put in Stidham and all these different things. McDaniel's job is basically on the line with this signing. They have history from Jimmy's time and tenure in uh, New England. They also went out and signed Jacoby Myers from New England, who also has familiarity with Josh McDaniels. You have a couple of different pieces to line up now offensively that are going to be talented. Jacoby Myers, Hunter Renfro, arguably the best receiver in the game, Devontae Adams. The only questionable decision that Vegas made was trading Waller as they acquired Jimmy. It just was just very awkward. As you sign a free agent quarterback of the future, you go and you trade arguably your best talented player outside of Devontae Adams. Maybe it's because he's consistently injured, but we'll get into that in a cons- we'll get into that conversation for that player in a second. What Jimmy G can do for you, again, isn't going to necessarily jump off the page, but maybe he can change the culture. Again, I've I've said it. Jimmy wins. That's period. No matter what. Whenever Jimmy was put into an NFL game, he found ways to win. There's a reason why San Fran traded for him a couple years back. There's a reason why the, the Niners went 7-0 and when they got him. There's a reason why they went to a Super Bowl, NFC Championships. They got it done. Did the defense help them? Absolutely. But when you have offensive talent like the Niners did, led by Jimmy Garoppolo, that is a big portion as to why the 49ers were so successful and have been over the course of the last couple of years. Last season is a perfect example. Trey Lance gets hurt right off the bat in week two. Jimmy's got to come in. Everyone says he's washed. The whole nonsense in the offseason. And they go and they sparkle off a shit ton of wins until he gets hurt and Brock Purdy comes in. So that is the only issue slash question mark is, can he stay healthy? And obviously, we all don't know that. We can't look into the future. But for what Jimmy is worth right now and what they signed him for, especially with the market being as high as it is at $24.5 million a season or 24 and a quarter, I think that's pretty solid. He got $72 million up front or 72.75. So basically just short of $73 million. And he got only 45 guaranteed of that. I know what you're saying. It's more than half. But I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be incentives and all these different things. If you were to get injured, there's going to be repercussions and yada yada. The point is, if Jimmy can do what he did in Vegas, excuse me, in San Francisco, which is win, I think that will give them the opportunity, obviously, to go into the postseason. I'm not saying win a Super Bowl, compete for an AFC championship, because again, they are in the most difficult division in the game in the AFC West. I think Jimmy Garoppolo can help. 
Am I saying that Jimmy Garoppolo is better than Derek Carr? Yes. Do I believe that the Raiders are going to have a better record than the Saints? No, not this year. The Raiders also have a lot of underlying issues on the defensive side. They've also had a statistically, what, in Derek Carr's eight, nine years in Vegas, they've been either 29th to 32nd in terms of overall ranked defense consistently. There are going to be a lot of issues that are going to be looming in Vegas, but I will stand on this hill here. Josh McDaniels' career rides on Jimmy Garoppolo's shoulders. If this flops, McDaniels will be out, and we're going to see what happens with Jimmy G there. But as a Jimmy G fan, I'm hoping nothing but the best for him. I think the Raiders are going to hopefully turn it around this year. Kev, I was literally going to say the same thing about Josh McDaniels when it comes to this Jimmy G signing, because this, to me, this is a prove-it type of move. It's either live with this move or you die by this move. And for me personally, I don't have any problem with them moving on from Derek Carr for Jimmy G because like you said, I think Jimmy G's track record speaks for itself. Wherever he's gone, he's been relatively successful. It's just unfortunately for him, it hasn't ended in a Super Bowl championship with him leading the way. They've gotten to a Super Bowl. They made it to Super Bowl 54 uh, with him leading the way for the 49ers, but unfortunately they fell to the Chiefs in that game in Miami a few years back. But I will say, when it comes to Jimmy G, this upcoming tenure with the Raiders, it's not going to be easy because let's face it, the Raiders are in one of the most competitive divisions in all of football. They play in the AFC West. You're going up against teams like the Chiefs. The Chiefs just came off of a Super Bowl championship just a couple months back. You look at the Denver Broncos. The Broncos are going to be hungry this upcoming year. I can guarantee you that based on how bad last year it worked out with Nathaniel Hackett at the head coaching spot. So with Sean Payton leading the way at the head coaching spot, I imagine Russell's trying to have a comeback year based off of how it went last year. I think the Broncos are going to give the Raiders a challenge. And then you look at the Chargers. The Chargers, they made it to the playoffs this past year, and then they had that epic collapse against Jacksonville in the wild card round. And I imagine that they're going to be chippy this upcoming year based on how last year ended for them. So when you look at the Raiders, you know, the Raiders, they're rolling with Jimmy G. Obviously, they picked up Jacoby Myers from New England to add some depth to that wide receiver core. And like Kev said, when you look at their wide receiving core, it's pretty solid. You look at the top three guys, you got Devontae Adams, you got Hunter Renfro, and now Jacoby Myers. It's not a bad room to work with. I think the Darren Waller trade, I think it's going to hurt them definitely offensively, just because when you look at Darren Waller, he's most mostly known for his explosiveness in that tight end part of the offense. It would have been very interesting to see how they would have worked that out with Darren Waller being in that tight end room, because if you just look at it on paper, you put Darren Waller with that wide receiving core, Jimmy could put up some touchdowns with that core. The only thing is whether or not the offensive line would hold up to protect him. And that's going to be a key point of emphasis here for me is whether or not the offensive line is going to be able to hold up to protect to protect Jimmy G. Because when it comes to Jimmy G, unfortunately, one of the things that has just been relentless throughout his career is his injuries. And you look back to last year, he got plagued by injuries once again and pretty much missed the rest of the season once he went down about, I would say, a little bit more than halfway through the season. So... Obviously, when it comes to the Raiders, they are taking a little bit of a risk when it comes to Jimmy G simply just because of injury history, especially recently. But wherever he's gone, 
as long as he's been given time to work with, he's largely succeeded. And he has a good running back behind him with Josh Jacobs in the fold. So I don't think this is all going to be on Jimmy G's shoulders. I think that Josh McDaniels, I think if he's smart, he's able to balance it effectively for the workload between Jimmy G passing the football and then Josh Jacobs running the football. I think offensively, I think they'll be okay. I think what this comes down to is what Kevin was is what Kevin alluded to. Is their defense capable enough to be able to get stops to get the ball back to Jimmy G? If they can do that consistently enough, I think that they can make the playoffs this upcoming year. How far they get, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe they can make a wild card round. I think best case scenario, they maybe make it to a divisional round. I think that's best case scenario for them at this point. But I think they were just dead set on moving on from Derek Carr. Maybe it's just a situation where Derek and Josh McDaniels were able to see eye to eye on how to lead this offense to new heights. And obviously, I think the familiarity between Josh McDaniels and Jimmy G, I think, was a big part in why both sides were able to come to an agreement for the foreseeable future. And we'll kind of see how this whole thing works out. But I think Jimmy G gives the Raiders a chance to be competitive in the AFC West. But to the point where they're going to win the AFC West outright, I don't see that. I think the Chiefs are better than them. I think you can make a case that the Chargers are better than them. And I think it's going to be a dogfight between them and the Broncos to figure out who's going to be third fiddle in the AFC West. But maybe there's a chance that the Raiders could hop into second fiddle behind the Chiefs in the AFC West if they play their cards right. Who knows? But like I said at the top, I think this comes down to Jimmy G's got to perform. And if he does not perform, I think Josh Daniels will be out. I, I don't know if it'll be this year. I, it could be next year. But this decision essentially decides the fate of Josh McDaniels as the head coach for the Raiders. And time will tell whether he lives by that decision or dies by that decision. And I'll just leave it at that. Whole lot riding on Vegas right now. And uh, kind of curious to see if Jimmy can revitalize uh, Josh McDaniels' career. Because again, last hope, well, this is it, the Hail Mary. Yeah, it's just, you know, when it comes to Josh McDaniels and his head coaching tenure, it's been rough. And just when you look back at the Denver tenure, it was very short-lived. Most of his success has been predicated on being the offensive coordinator for the New England Patriots in both stints, whether it was essentially the 05 to about, I think it was 2008 tenure as New England's OC. And then obviously when he came back, I believe in 2012, 2013, that time frame, And New England went on to win, what, three Super Bowls? in his tenure before he went to Vegas as their head coach. So it's just, unfortunately for Josh, he hasn't been able to figure it out as the head coaching uh, spot. He hasn't been able to figure it out to find a successful way to win games at that spot. But uh, I mean, when it comes to his offensive coordinating skills, Kev, he's one of the best offensive coordinators of all time. Brilliant I mean, mind. Brilliant nobody, mind. nobody can, nobody can really doubt him on that. It's just, unfortunately with the head coaching thing, he has fallen short in that regard, but it's going to be very interesting to see what, what happens uh, this upcoming year with Jimmy G leading the fold. Because like you said, Kev, I think Josh McDaniel's job, I think it essentially rides on it. So we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. 
We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You know, moving on to our next free agent, this is going to be Orlando Brown. He played the left tackle position for Patrick Mahomes. He had an incredible performance in the Super Bowl, assisting in limiting the Philadelphia Eagles to zero sacks in that game, as well as protecting Pat's blind side. Instead of re-upping and going back to the Super Bowl champions, he decides to go to the enemy, and he decides to go and now protect Joe Burrow. Now the Cincinnati Bengals, the last year, have already added a couple of all-pros caliber, all-pro potential offensive linemen in Alex Kappa as well as Lyle Collins. Unfortunately, they had some injuries to that offensive line closer to the postseason. Joe Burrow started getting sacked. The Bengals fell. We all know the history from there. So, Kyle, what do you think Orlando Brown brings to the table to this already consistently improving offensive line in Cincinnati? I think he has a very good chance to be able to bolster this offensive line to stabilize it to a point where Joe Burrow can finally stand upright throughout the majority of the season. Because when you look at Joe Burrow throughout his early tenure in his NFL career, Kev, he's been on his back tremendously. And he's been able to succeed very well despite that. I will never forget that game a couple years ago when the Bengals were going up against the Titans. The Titans were the number one seed. And Joe Burrow was sacked nine times in that game. And fortunately for them, they won that game against the Titans. You know, usually when an opposing defense gets nine sacks on your quarterback, literally nine times out of ten, you're probably going to lose that game because you're just wasting opportunities time and time again to be able to move the ball up and down the field consistently. But when it comes to Orlando Brown, I think he has a very good chance to be able to finally solidify that left tackle position. And that's going to be Joe's blind side. And if they're able to lock that down effectively, I think that the Bengals offensive line will be okay. I think the biggest thing for me when it comes to their offensive line is whether or not that they could stay healthy. And there were multiple times throughout this past season where they were just shuffling guys around because most of the offensive linemen were dealing with some sort of injury. Al Collins was dealing with injuries. You had Alex Kappa dealing with injuries. It's just, it was kind of just a makeshift offensive line. And that was despite the fact that the Bengals, not this offseason, but the offseason prior, they made a huge investment to bolster their offensive line. And yet, in the biggest game that they had last year against the Chiefs, they fell apart. Joe Burrow couldn't stand, stay upright. And in the biggest moment of the game where the Bengals could have marched down the field to potentially win the game against the Chiefs in Arrowhead, Joe Burrow got sat, they punt the ball, and then Patrick Mahomes uh, puts the Chiefs in position where Harrison Bucker hits the game-winning field goal. And the Chiefs end up going to the Super Bowl instead of the Bengals. So I think when you really look at the starting five on the Bengals' O-line right now, I'm looking at their depth chart right now. At the left tackle position, you have Orlando Brown. You've got Cordell Volson at the left guard position. You've got Ted Karras at the center position. Uh, center position. Uh, Ted Karras came from New England, was extremely successful there. They brought him in last year. You have Alex Kappa, who came from uh, that Bucks Super Bowl winning team just a few years ago. And then at the right tackle position, you have either Jonah Williams or Leal Collins. It's going to come down to who's going to win out that positional, positional battle in the upcoming training camp. But overall, on paper, this should be a functional offensive line. It's just whether or not these guys can stay healthy. If they can, 
I think that Joe will be more protected this year than he has been in years past. And I think if that happens, I think all bets are off. I think Cincinnati will have a very good chance to be able to compete for another Super Bowl this upcoming year. They made it to the AFC Championship game this past year and damn near got back-to-back-to-back Super Bowls. And I think if that offensive line had stepped up and made some plays and made some key blocks, who knows? Maybe they could have gotten to a Super Bowl and maybe they could have even defeated the Philadelphia Eagles. But, you know, unfortunately, those those ghosts of the past, they showed in the worst time possible against the Chiefs and it cost them. So when it comes to Orlando Brown, I, I think he's going to make this offensive line better. I think he has a very good chance to be able to provide some great stability on Joe's blind side. And hopefully it's a cascade effect where it impacts the entire offensive line to the point where they're ready to run and gun the entire year. And hopefully, you know, for Joe's sake, he hasn't sat more than 30 times this upcoming season. And I think if the Bengals are able to do that effectively, if they're able to protect Joe, I think there's a lot of success that the Bengals can have this upcoming year. I'll just leave it at that. We've talked about this every single season since Joe Burrow's coming to the league. Protect him. He is such a a pivotal offensive piece. He is such an incredible and talented player for whatever organization that would have drafted him. And again, it's the fact that it's the Bengals and the weapons that they have. This offense can go to historic places. You could have, I wouldn't say Tyler Boyd is necessarily, a, uh, he could be a number one anywhere, but you could make an argument that he's a strong number two. But the three-headed monster that they have in Chase, in Higgins, in Boyd, if you don't keep Joe up, those guys don't touch the ball, plays aren't made, points aren't put up. We've talked about this countless times, week in and week out, it seems like, during the NFL season, both this year and last year. It was all about keeping Joe healthy, keeping Joe off of his back. And they started to make improvements toward the middle of last season after the Bengals had struggled through their first four or five weeks. They had made adjustments. Joe wasn't sacked nearly as often, and then it fell apart as other people got injured. Once you solidify the blind side, the left tackle position may be the most important piece next to the center because, again, the center obviously initiates the play by snapping the ball into the quarterback's hands, and it needs to be a clean snap, whether that be in the shotgun or under, so the quarterback can catch the ball and or you know have the ball underneath the, you know, the typical have it under center or whatever so you're not fumbling anything. Once that transition is seamless, you then have to transition into pass blocking. The left tackle, in my opinion, is probably the most important because for most quarterbacks, they're right-handed. You can't see behind your head. And when you wear a football helmet, you're very limited to what you can see as it is. So you have to rely on that person to protect the side you're literally impossible to see. If you're right-handed, obviously, you're going to be able to see just about the center here, maybe the left guard, depending on how you're looking, unless you're scanning the field. But for the most part, since they're right-handed, their initial thought is drop back and they have to basically trust the, the two people behind them. So the same goes for Tua. It would be the right tackle, which would be his blind side because he's a lefty. But Orlando Brown, we've seen him make pivotal adjustments, whether that was him in Kansas City. If I'm not mistaken, he was also in Baltimore and helped protect Lamar Jackson, have that MVP season and breaking the single season rushing record. So, I mean, this guy finds a way to make quarterbacks better, keeps them safe. And again, he just he's just a winner. So, this could be the most important signing in free agency, depending on who you ask, especially Bengals fans. But Cincinnati was already good as it is. Cincinnati's offense was already good as it is. You go and you do the same thing you did last year and add another potential all-pro 
Pro Bowl offensive lineman. This is going to show the Bengals are paying attention to where they're struggling and lacking in. And they understand that Joe Burrow is the way of the future. Without Joe, there's no hope. Yeah, it's it just comes down to the offensive line. And when Joe's been given time effectively, Kev, he dices up defenses left and right. And even when he's being pressured, as much as he has been throughout his early career, he's still been able to largely succeed. It's just, you know, you got to have an effective offensive line. And in his case, early on in his career, he hasn't had that. And I think if he's able to have that luxury going forward, man, that's going to pay huge dividends down the road. It's going to save, it could potentially save a quarterback. Kev, we have talked time and time again about quarterbacks. Careers have been cut short because of the amount of pressure that they face time and time again. I always round back to Andrew Luck. I mean, the injuries got to him, and it was simply just because of the injuries that he sustained based on the lack of the offensive line protection that he received. He should still be playing in the NFL. And I know that Ryan, I know that Ryan Grigson is somebody that Kev just outright despises because he finds him single-handedly responsible on what happened to Andrew Luck in his career. And hopefully the Bengals don't repeat those same mistakes when it comes to Joe Burrow because Joe Burrow is a generational talent. And he's been largely successful based on the fact that he's not had a strong offensive line to work with. I say you got to give got to give him a chance, but you got to build up that offensive line. And I think I think this may be the final piece to add to that offensive line. It just it really comes down to whether or not these guys can stay healthy. Last year, it was just a makeshift offensive line because guys were just getting dinged up throughout the season. And hopefully, hopefully all these guys can stay healthy going into next year. Because I think if that happens, I, I think the Bengals are going to go places next year. I agree. So, I mean, we're going to move on to our last big free agent. We're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to go tight end. We're going to go Darren Waller. So Darren Waller gets traded from the Vegas Raiders to the New York Giants for, I believe, a third-round pick. And it just seems a little odd, like we talked about during the Jimmy Garoppolo segment, that they would trade their all-pro, former former Pro Bowl tight end, just as they're acquiring a quarterback of the future. What's up? I'm going to ask you something, but keep it going. Oh, okay. I thought you had something to say, like you had just read something else. The guys, news has been dropping up and down between Shefty and everybody I, else. So it's like, I wouldn't have been I, surprised if something I happened. Ha- I have seen something. It is Eagles related, but I'll tell you later. Okay. So basically, Darren Waller now is teamed up and partnered with Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. And a, an improving Giants team that just made it to the division round of the playoffs. Can Darren Waller move the needle for this offense? with Daniel Jones, despite the injuries that he's had in his career? I think that he can. And when I look at Darren Waller, when it comes to his tenure with the Raiders, he was largely successful over the last couple of seasons. And I think you could even go back to, not this past season, but just a couple of years ago, 2020 to 2021, he was one of the most productive tight ends in the NFL. I mean, He was right alongside guys like Travis Kelsey. It's just... When it came to last year, statistically, he just fell short. And Kev, this was honestly the question that I was going to ask you. When it came to Darren Waller last year, was he dealing with a boatload of injuries? Because I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, he missed a 
big portion of the season last year. Because when you look at him statistically, Kev, there's a massive drop-off. 2022, he only had 28 catches. I don't even think he had 500 yards receiving. So there was a massive production drop-off when it came to Darren Waller this past year with the Raiders. But to kind of get back on point, I think when it comes to Darren Waller being on the Giants, I think he's going to solidify that tight end position extremely well. Because you, you look at the tight ends that the Giants have had relatively recently. The biggest name that I can come up with off the top of my head is Evan Ingram. And Evan Ingram is no longer there. He's in Jacksonville. So the biggest thing for me is if Darren Waller can stay healthy, I think the connection that he can establish with Daniel Jones will be a good one. And Darren Waller has already been in the Giants facility. And there's already been communications between Darren Waller and Daniel Jones. And hopefully these two guys can be able to establish a good working relationship this offseason and then hopefully build on it you know once we get into training camp and then we get into preseason and then when the regular season starts hopefully these two guys will be able to mesh to the point where they can run an effective offense it just comes down to whether or not that the Giants offense is going to be able to keep the consistency that they were able to produce at the end of this past year because when it comes to the Giants, the Giants offensively have been tough to watch over the last couple of years, but I thought last year was finally a step in the right direction with Brian Dable as their head coach. It finally seemed that Brian Dable was able to get better usage out of Daniel Jones because Daniel Jones statistically for himself had one of, if not his best seasons yet as a professional quarterback. But when you compare Daniel Jones to the rest of the NFL in that quarterback realm, he's relatively subpar. But I think that this is a big move. This was a huge trade for the Giants to be able to pick him up and to finally add some depth to just the overall core, whether it be wide receivers or tight end core. This was a move that I think the Giants needed to make to finally bring in some top-tier talent into the fold to help out Daniel Jones. Because when you look at this past season with the Giants wide receiving core, they were just riddled with injuries. And Kenny Galladay did not work out. They ended up moving off of him just because his production was just nowhere to be found whatsoever when he was a member of the Giants. So when it comes to the Giants, they're still figuring out some things. I imagine going into this year, uh, they're probably take away some positive things from this past year. You know, they made it to the divisional round of the playoffs this past year. They finished with a above 500 record. And with Daniel Jones, I think taking those progressive steps forward as an NFL quarterback, I think Darren Waller is somebody that can immensely help out this Giants offense. And I think really at the end of the day, if he's able to produce very similar to what he was able to do in that 2020-2021 stretch with the Raiders and bring that to the Giants, I think that overall he could bring a huge impact to that Giants offense moving forward. And maybe they even take a leap forward to potentially getting 10 to 11 wins next year because of his presence alone. And I think having someone like him in the fold for Daniel Jones to work with, I think it's going to have a very positive effect on not only the offense, but I think to the team as a larger extent. But overall... This was a move that the Giants needed to make, and it definitely strengthens that core aspect of the wide receiving core, even though that he's 
technically considered a tight end. So Darren Waller's injury that Kyle had mentioned was a hamstring injury that he had suffered earlier in, I believe, July. That kind of, you know, he was fine. He missed about a month of practice that carried into the regular season. Then he re-aggravated that same hamstring in October. So he missed quite a bit of time in the actual regular season because he just was not available to play. In regards to what he's going to bring to the Giants, I agree with Kyle completely. The biggest thing that I'm looking at is I don't think he's necessarily going to be a definitive big option like he was with Derek Carr and the offense of the Raiders. I think he's going to be more as a decoy, as someone that is going to create a distraction in the middle of the field, which is going to leave a lot of one-on-one matchups for the receivers on the outside. They just re-signed Slayton. I know they're also still pursuing Odell Beckham Jr. They released Kenny Galladay. They signed Paris Campbell, who is a speedster, who I believe will benefit from this signing the most. Because again, someone that blows the top off of a defense, you're going to have a tight end that's usually crossing over the middle of the field in most of those cases. The safety's got to pick their poison. Which one are they going to take? Nine times out of ten, they usually take the tight end that's crossing. But Paris Campbell is known for specifically that. So you may even have Darren Waller open in a lot of instances. But also, like Kyle said, the injury history is going to be the biggest concern. We know what Darren Waller can produce when healthy. I believe he had back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons 2020 and 2021 because last year he was hurt and the year before that he was hurt. So, or should I say, excuse me, was it 2019? It was 2019, 2019 to 2020. I got the years wrong. Yeah, so overall, we know the potential of what Darren can do. We know what Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley can do, but can Daniel Jones do it consistently? And I think now that he will have a definitive option as to someone he can rely on and trust, someone who can go out there and make a difference on the field, and not to mention a tight end is a quarterback's best friend in a lot of situations, especially someone like Daniel Jones, who hasn't been the most gifted at the quarterback position in, I guess, the first four years of his career, even though he got a massive contract this past offseason or this offseason. What Darren Waller can do for the Giants is immediately open up that playbook. It's it's tremendous what Brian Dable is going to be able to do with him and that and that offense, how he's going to scheme it, how he's going to prepare it. The Giants just need to add, I believe, in my personal opinion, one more playmaker on the outside. I'm not saying go break the bank on a big wide receiver. Maybe make a trade for Allen Robinson. Maybe you go out there and you go under the radar and you, you try to get D-Hop out of Arizona. Maybe you try to get Odell Beckham for a discounted price. I don't know. I have no idea. Go get one more person. Then you will have someone to compliment Waller. You have Saquon Barkley in the backfield. I think the Giants can make some noise. I don't know about getting to where they got to last year necessarily, but if they can use this signing to catapult the offense, sky's the limit. Uh, Bless you. Starting to hit you a little bit with those allergies? Yeah, pretty much. I'm actually surprisingly good at this point. I mean, literally, you know, knock on wood at this point, but we only got a couple segments to go, so hopefully I, I stay upright at this point. But no, I think when it comes to Darren Waller, I think the best way that I could put it is I think that Daniel Jones could use him as a security blanket. Big time. And, hey, look, if the options for the wideouts aren't there, if he's out there on the check down, I check it down to him. And knowing what Darren Waller is capable of, he could break some tackles. Because he is one of the more elusive tight ends in the league. I mean, there have been times where when you've seen him out just running his routes, he almost 
kind of instills some some wide receiver aspects just because of how athletic he is at that tight end position. It's just for me, is he able to? I'm not even saying recap. Let me rephrase this. If he's able to do 75% of what he did in 2019 and 2020 with the Raiders, and I'm saying maybe get 60 to 65 catches, maybe 70 catches for maybe 800 to 900 yards receiving and bring that to a Giants offense that desperately needs it, I think that's going to pay huge dividends for the Giants moving forward. And I think, I think bringing someone like him I think it gives Dan Jones a little bit more confidence, especially with Darren Waller being the league for quite some time. I think to finally bring in somebody of that caliber who has that veteran experience at that tight end position, I think it's going to pay wonders. I think to me, the biggest thing that they have to work on from the Giants perspective is they still have to find a way to strengthen this wide receiver court because Kev, it's just not strong. Unfortunately, you know, injuries played their huge part last year, which was a huge detriment to them. And if they can find a way to just maybe, like you said, try to go out and maybe get one more piece that could, I'm not even saying overhaul the wide receiving core, but just strengthen it to a point where it could be more competitive against opposing defenses, I think the Giants could take a pretty decent-sized step next year forward. Maybe they can get around 10-11 wins uh, this upcoming year as long as Daniel Jones continues to progress. And I think with Brian Dable leading the way, I think there's a very good chance that that could happen. Yeah. I, I agree. Speaking of wins, <laughs> this team hasn't been able to do so on the road. So, Kyle, what do we have next? Yeah, yeah so up next, we are going to pivot. We are going to go to the NBA. We're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors. Look, the Golden State Warriors, last year, they were NBA Finals champions. Nobody doubts that. But when it comes to this year, it has been a battle, to say the least. Guys, we got to go over the Warriors, and we got to look at the the difference in records when they're at home compared to when they're at, a, at an away venue. Guys, when they are at home at the Chase Center, they are 29-7. and seven. It is one of the best home records in the NBA. I think there's only a few teams that might have a better home record. You could look at teams like the Nuggets who have a 30-6 and six record at home and then the Grizzlies who have a 28-5 and five record. But the Warriors are right there. They're in that similar type of company at home. And then we kick it to their away record. Kev, this is historically bad. I know you talked about it earlier in the episode. Kev, they are 7-27 and 27 on the road. It is horrifically bad. Kev, they are in the same category of teams like the Spurs and the Rockets when it comes to an away record. The Spurs have a 6-27 and 27 away record. The Rockets have a 6-28 and 28 record away from home. They are in that type of company. So, you know, you look at their home record, you think, oh my God, the Warriors should be a top two, top three team in the Western Conference. And then you look at their away record, you literally would put them in the category of the worst teams in the NBA. It's crazy, just the dichotomy that you see between their home and away records. And the fact that it's happening to the defending champions with the Warriors is just stunning. So, Kev, my question to you is, do you think that the Warriors can be able to overcome their road woes now that we're coming very close to the playoffs? The only hope for the Warriors in the postseason is going to be is if they solidify a top four seed, which I do not believe is going to be possible with only 12 games left. And the Warriors got a quite a bit of road games, if I'm not mistaken. I'm looking at their schedule right now, and I'm trying to see because I actually just hit refresh instead of hitting the other button. 
So they're going up against the Hawks. They're going up against the Grizzlies. They're going to Houston. They're going to Dallas. Then they have a home game for the first time against the 76ers. Then they end it. Yeah, I mean, guys, right after the 76ers, they're home against the Timberwolves. They're home against the Pelicans. Home against the Spurs. Then you go to the Nuggets. You're home for the Thunder. And then you end the season on the road against the Kings and the Trailblazers. The majority of their remaining games are on the road. Golden State is not looking good, at least at what I had said in solidifying a top four record. Because what I'm thinking in Steve Kerr's mind is if we solidify a top four seed, we get to host a series or we get to host a a playoff series, which in terms means that it's going to be at home first, two, then away, two, then one, 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 back and forth and whatever have you. So Golden State, their strategy has got to be we got to win the first two at home. Hopefully, maybe get one away, and if not, we got to win everything else. Like if everything goes to a game seven, Golden State's going to end that series at home, and they're just going to have to win every game at home. And if they lose every game on the road, it makes no difference. But that's just that's not a good strategy. I know that they're missing Andrew Wiggins. I know that Clay Thompson had rolled his ankle, but he's been killing it since the All Star break. Um, Steph Curry was hurt for a while. He just dropped fifty the other night. So I mean, like. It's not that they're lacking. It's just they can't get it done. I don't know if it's chemistry. I don't know if they go cold when they're away. I have no idea what runs through their mind. But the fact that Steph's out here averaging 30 points a game at age 35, dropping 50 points against the Clippers, who are the fifth seed, who are right above them by just one game, this could have been pivotal in changing the direction of how their season went because they would have swapped with the Clippers, if I'm not mistaken. And then you have the remaining schedule that you have, not to say that all the matchups are not favorable, because obviously when you got Houston, when you got obviously the uh, the Spurs in there, the Pelicans without Zion, you have some favorable games that you can get it done. It's just a matter of, can Golden State finish a game? I, I just, I don't understand what's happening. The fact that if you're not in the Chase Center, you're basically one of the worst teams in the league. It, it's too inconsistent for me. So if they do go to the playoffs, I think it's not going to make a difference because I don't see them getting a top four seed. I think they're probably a first round exit just because of how bad they play on the road. And I think unless Andrew Wiggins comes out of nowhere and turns the season around and gives them that spark that they need, but he is dealing with a personal matter. I think the Warriors, unfortunately, maybe bounce out of the first round. Kev, when we look at the Warriors on the road, the one thing that strikes me the most is is kept they're giving up a bunch of points on the road. You know, scoring points with Golden State is never really a worry. But when you look at Golden State over what I would consider the last 10 years or so, defensively, they've been one of the more efficient teams on the defensive side. I mean, there was a stretch in time when they were on their dynasty run. Defensive efficiency was their name of the game. And that's why they were one of the most successful teams in the 2010s. But you look to now, these guys are... Getting older. Steph's getting older. Clay's getting older. Draymond's getting older. Their core roster is getting older. And, you know, unfortunately with Andrew Wiggins being out of the fold, who's a huge defensive piece, mind you, I think that they're definitely missing his presence. And, you know, when Steph goes out there and drops 50 points and they still lose, that is very disconcerting for the team moving forward. Kev, let's look over just the last couple of games in particular on the road and how many points that they're giving up in the process. So obviously, like Kev mentioned, you look at their last road game. They play the Clippers. They gave up 134 points. Mind you, the Warriors scored 126. So offensively, they're still scoring. It's a, They're just giving so many more points on the other side of the court. 
it's just a recipe for disaster. You look at the Grizzlies game. That was uh, on March 9th. They gave up 131 points. The game before that on the road, they played the Thunder. They gave up 137 points against the Lakers. They gave up 113 on the road. After that, they had a little bit of a home stretch. Uh, they played the Lakers back in February. They lost that game. They scored up. They allowed 124 points. This is just not winning basketball, and it's mostly on the defensive side. Steph can go out there and drop you 50 points, but if the defense is not backing you up on the other end of the court, what's it worth then at that point? So when it comes to Golden State's record right now, it just the dichotomy between their home record and their away record is so striking. It's almost as if you're seeing two different teams because when you look at their home record, it's one of the best home records in the NBA. Essentially, you would think that the Warriors with their home record, they've only lost, if I look at it correctly, I'm just going to pull up their their home record. They're 29-7 and at home. They would be in the same company with the Grizzlies and the Nuggets. So that essentially, they'd be a top three seed if you just look at that statistical number. And then you look at the road woes that they've had this year. They are in company with teams like the Spurs and the Rockets. They are 7-27 and on the road. The Spurs, like I said earlier, they're 6-27 on the road. And the Rockets are 6-28 on the road. Those are abysmal numbers. And the fact that the Warriors are in that same category with teams like that, it's just striking to me that you're seeing this from a defending title team just the past year. So, you know, even if Andrew Wiggins were to come back into the fold, there's no guarantee that he would solidify it to the point where their defensive rating would go up tremendously. Maybe he would help out a little bit. But as far as I see it, you know, the Warriors are the sixth seed in the West right now. And even though the West is pretty logjam right now, I have my doubts about Golden State. I wish that I was a little bit more optimistic with Golden State simply just because Steph could carry them to the promised land. But the fact that their defense is so lacking, especially on the road, and that's been the biggest contributor in why they've struggled on the road this year. When it gets into a playoff series, there's no guarantee that they're going to win any road games, depending on who they play. And even if you were to look at who they would potentially play in the first round of the playoffs, if they were to start today, they play the Grizzlies. And... The Grizzlies, when it comes from an offensive perspective, they are a very tough team to stop. So they got to figure this out quick, fast, and in a hurry. Because if they don't finish the season on some sort of a heater to improve their record overall and improve their standing in the Western Conference, I'm with Kev 100%. I think the Warriors get knocked out of the first round. I think right now it's all but certain that they're going to get knocked out of the first round if they keep playing like this. I think... If they get on some sort of win streak and they buck this trend at on the road, you know maybe they can win the first round in the NBA playoffs and maybe get to the second round. And I think after that, I think they'd probably get eliminated. But if they're not careful, if they keep falling, if they could potentially be in a play-in tournament situation, and there's no guarantee that they could move on to get into the playoffs. They could potentially find themselves on the outside looking in if they were to lose some of those playing tournament games. So look, Steph is one of the most generational players that we've seen in NBA history. Clay Thompson's a sharpshooter. They're the Splash Brothers, but they can only get you so far. If they're not protecting the rim on the other side of the court, 
if the whole team is just not playing defense up to snuff on that side of the court, they're going to fall short. And this year on the road, they have fallen tremendously short in that regard. And I think it's going to be the biggest impediment for them if they get into the playoffs. So, I mean, I don't really have anything left to say when it comes to the Golden State situation. Obviously, at this point, it's they have to find a way to win games down the stretch, just like a lot of those teams that are backlogged at the end of the Western Conference. Um, obviously, Dallas is in that boat. The Lakers are in that same boat and so many other teams. So it is the final stretch. We're talking about the last full couple weeks of the season. Win or go home, and uh, you're going to see a lot. The only good thing about the backlog is you're going to definitely see a lot of great play in tournament games. Yeah. Because these teams are so tight in record, it's not like a a six seven game gap like it was a few years ago when it was like I don't remember who it was. I think it was like the uh, who the hell was in the playing tournament just a few, when it when it first got started. It was like Golden, Golden State and Golden State was Golden in State, it. Yeah, Golden State and the Lake. And then there was the other two teams. There's a couple other teams that were in it. I can't remember who it was. The, I think Minnesota was in it. Were the Grizzlies in it? The Grizzlies might have been that other team. Maybe it. Regardless. It's going to be competitive, and that's what's going to be fun. I think the Grizzlies were in that one of those playing tournament games. Because didn't they beat Golden State in one of those No, games? didn't the Lakers beat Golden State? Because then you yeah. went on to play Phoenix and lose? Yeah. and Because that's when Steph came off of the injury. Yeah. And, or that's when he said at the podium, like, yeah. you guys, when we get fully healthy. Yeah. That's true. Yep. Yeah. So, um... That that's our thoughts on the NBA. It sounds like your allergies are coming back too right now, so we're just gonna just dive. a little bit, just a little bit. We we are gonna go full UFC, Kyle. This is your show. What do we have on the slate on the card for this Saturday? Kev, we got a trilogy fight here. We got Leon Edwards versus Kamaru Usman. This fight is taking place in London for UFC 286, and this is going to be by far and away the biggest fight of the weekend. You know, when you look at these two in particular, they fought two fights. Uh, Kamaru won the first fight, and then Leon Edwards in the second fight literally comes back from the dead after essentially being down three rounds to one in that second fight and hits Kamaru Usman with a high left kick to the head, knocks him out, and gets the welterweight belt when essentially it looked like Kamaru was going to absolutely run away with that fight in particular. So... With this fight in particular, when I look back at these two in their first two fights, the one thing that stood out to me the most was Kamaru's pressure. Kamaru just pressured Leon consistently throughout both fights. And even in the second one, even though that Kamaru lost that fight, from pretty much rounds two to four, Kamaru was bringing relentless pressure. He was always hitting Leon with some good jabs, some right hooks, and if Kamaru saw an opportunity to take down Leon Edwards, he took advantage of it, and he was able to get multiple takedowns against Leon in that second fight, despite losing against Edwards in that fight. So if I'm looking at this from Kamaru's perspective going into the trilogy fight, I would say that Kamaru honestly should just look back to that second fight and pretty much try to do what he did pretty much through rounds two and four. If he's able to consistently do that in this third fight, I think he will be crowned that welterweight champion once again. I think the biggest thing with him is if he knows that he's up towards the end of the fight, let's say, for example, we get to round five with these two and Kumaru's up. I think at that point, Kumaru should just play full-on defense, let Leon try to swing for the fences and just play all-out defense. 
because unfortunately for Kamara, he got a little bit too close and then Leon hit him with that left high kick and it was lights out for Kamara. Now, if you're looking at this from Leon's perspective, Leon, as far as I'm concerned, you could say that he got lucky. It was a perfect left high kick that knocked out Kamara. But you look back at that entirety of the fight, Leon was absolutely defeated going into that fifth round. It was so bad that his own coaches were basically saying that Leon has to get it together because it looked like he was just defeated. It looked like Kamara was just going to absolutely run away with that fifth round. And then Leon lands that high kick, and it was a complete change to what we had just seen previously in the last four rounds. It was honestly one of the most shocking results that we've ever seen in UFC history. And it was to the point where even the commentator booth for the UFC, guys like Joe Rogan, Daniel Cormier, and John Anik, they were just completely bewildered and baffled by the fact that Leon Edwards was essentially dead in the water in that fight and then lands that one high kick and he is crowned the welterweight champ. If Going into this fight, he has to be more focused because, granted, he landed that high kick, but he did not look like the winner in that fight through the first four rounds. So as far as I have to see it, Leon has to be more confident. He has to be able to try to take down Kamara's takedowns because Kamara's going to go after those takedowns. He's going to try to get ground control. So if Leon's able to improve his overall takedown defense against Kamara, I think that will serve him well. I think if he's smart, he goes back to his kickboxing. I think he, if he throws some kicks, whether that's at Kamara's legs or if he wants to go for another high kick, I mean, he has precedent with that. So maybe that's something he could go back into the fight for this third, third one overall. Maybe he uses that. But I think for me, I just have to see more pressure from Leon in this fight. If he's able to do that more consistently, I think we will get a pretty good fight here. I, even though that Leon won that last fight against Kamaro, I'm still of the mindset that Kamaro was the better fighter in that particular fight. It's just that Leon made the one move to win the fight. So going into this one, if I had to guess who's going to win this fight, I think when it's all said and done, I think we will hear and new by Bruce Buffer and Kamaru Uzma will retain the, well, actually, I should, I should say retain. He will reclaim the welterweight belt against Leon Edwards. And look, Leon's essentially at home for this fight. This fight is taking place in London. He'll be in front of his home country. And defending it against Kamaru Usman, that welterweight belt is not going to be easy. And I think Kamaru is going to be hungry. I think he's going to be pissed about the fact that he let one mistake define that fight the last time these two fought. I think that Kamaru is going to learn from his mistakes. I think if Kamaru knows that he's up in the fight going into the fifth round, if it even gets there, I think that Kamaru is just going to play all out defense and he's not going to take any chances against Leon because Leon's capable of just one hit. And that could be lights out for Kamaru based on what we saw on that last fight. But overall, I think when it's all said and done, I think Kamaru Usman will reclaim that welterweight belt, and he will be the champion once again Once again, in that division. Seems like it's going to be a good fight. Obviously something that I'm probably going to try to tune in on, but knowing myself, probably forget just because I just, I don't know. It's just not really on my, the front of my mind. If you were here, I'd definitely have a reason to watch it, but it's like, I don't know. It'll be an earlier card. So when you look at London, London's six hours ahead of us. So this fight 
more than likely is not going to take place at midnight or 1230 in the morning. If I had to guess, the main card starts at five. So usually there's about five fights that you go through in the main card. And if they go relatively quickly, if they don't all go to a decision, more than likely, I would say Kumaro and Leon would fight around 7, 7.30, if I had to guess. Not too bad at all. So, you know, it's kind of one of the nice things about, you know, having the fight in London. You know, over here, it wouldn't be that late. It would be at a relatively primetime target. But with it being over there, you know, they wouldn't get to that fight probably around 1 a.m. their time. So, I I just, for me, I the way that I see it, I think Kumaro is still the better fighter. I think Leon showed a little bit. I think he really showed, I don't want to say he surrendered in that fight, but I think he was almost to the point where he knew like that fight wasn't going in his direction in that second fight. And he landed the one kick that he was able to get to get that knockout win. It's just that I think Kumaro is going to learn from those mistakes. And I think if he's in a position where he's up in that fight late, He's just gonna be. He's gonna play defense. And I think he's gonna let Leon try to swing for the fences, and I think he's just gonna play defense and not allow Leon to hit him. But or it's either that or Kamara will try to get takedowns, and that's honestly kind of like it, honestly that's a good defensive strategy. If you're able to get a takedown and able to maintain ground control for about two to three minutes, that can win you a fight, especially when you're up late in the rounds. So I just for me, I think that Kamara is gonna win that fight how convincingly I'm not so sure if I had to guess I'm going to say that fight goes to full distance I think Kamara is going to just tire out Leon very similar to what we saw in the second fight but it's just this time Leon's not going to get the kick to knock out Kamara but I mean it'll be very interesting to see these two go back because this is the trilogy fight for the both of them definitely so I mean guys it's going to wrap it up for us that is the end of the episode Kev we made it we didn't have to break it up at all. Like we finally yeah. made it through allergies. Don't don't get it. it twisted. In between some of them later segments, I was stepping away from the camera to blow my nose and wash my face. I, so I had a little bit. I, I had a little bit of a nasal thing to work through, but bro, we powered through. So I'll, we I'll we take Gucci, that any day. exactly. We'll we'll take it for what it is, guys. Thank you for all the support. Um, that's gonna end it for us here. Um, been a little bit of a lull lately, um, statistically wise, but. Not gonna let it discourage us. Gonna keep pushing through it. It's this business comes with ups and downs. We ain't worried about it. We're having fun, and that's all that matters. So, um, Kyle, that's everything I got. I honestly, I don't really have anything else. I I know the last couple episodes have been a little bit weird because Kevin and I have been dealing with the allergies, and we've had to break it up, and it hasn't been a, like a consistent episode, you know, from beginning to end. We've had to break it up into different segments. But it was it was nice to actually kind of get back into a little bit of a groove and consistently get through hour, hour and a half uninterrupted. So I'm kind of glad that we were able to get back into that groove. And we just appreciate you guys tuning in, whether that's watching us on YouTube or listening to the audio platforms. Uh, we definitely appreciate the support. And we hope that it continues as long as we keep going with this. But until next time, you guys, hopefully you guys have a nice weekend and we will see you guys next week. Hey, guys. It's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, 
Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. 